welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. And as usual, I want to start by thanking all of you that are supporting the podcast via Patreon. Your contributions all add up and make these conversations possible. And if you'd like to contribute, you can visit patreon.com forward slash the words matter podcast. And every little helps. So we're now at the closing ceremony of the Qualitative Research Series. And I want to thank all my guests that were incredibly generous with their time, knowledge and experience. Each one did a phenomenal job of communicating their quality of expertise in an immensely engaging and passionate way. And they've been part of what I hope will be an incredibly valuable resource on core research for clinicians, researchers, students or those who just want to find out more. And if you haven't listened to all the episodes, please do. And if you have listened to them all, Go back and listen again, as just like rewatching Game of Thrones, there are hidden nuggets and gems and insights which only become apparent on a second run. So on this final episode of the series, I'm speaking with Professor David Nichols in a special Ask Us Anything episode. I first spoke with Dave way back in episode 21 last year, in a hugely popular episode covering a range of topics related to the direction towards the end, a professional healthcare practice. So if you haven't listened to that episode and want to hear more from Dave, go back and take a listen. Dave is a professor in the School of Clinical Sciences at AUT University in Auckland, New Zealand. He's a physiotherapist, lecturer, researcher and writer with a passion for critical thinking in and around the physical therapies. He is the founder of the Critical Physiotherapy Network, an organisation that promotes the use of cultural studies, education, history, philosophy, sociology and a range of other disciplines in the study of the profession's past, present and future. So in this episode we talk about how the nature and form that research education takes shapes the thinking and practice of healthcare professionals We talk about the problem with the lack of sociological theories featuring in quality research and the absence of these theories in healthcare education. We discuss the continued dominance of the biomedical model in healthcare and how this relates to the sorts of knowledge, evidence and research that clinicians and students value, which is largely propositional, measurable and quantitative in nature. We talk about the problem of placing methods first and that this process-focused research constitutes what he calls quant-light rather than qualitative research. And Dave outlines his view on the problem of much of the current core research and that many of the current batch of qualitative offerings is not fit for purpose. And he outlines how post-qual provides a new way of thinking about and doing qualitative research. We talk about how healthcare is moving into a post-world, a post-qualitative world, a post-professional world, and a post-humanist world. 
and Dave shares how his sociological and interest in Foucault motivates him to ask questions of the structures that guide practice and the discourses which precede us and define who we are. And Dave shares his view that the field of qualitative health research is replete with work examining the patient experience and that there are other possibly more consequential sociological areas which need examining beyond this safe space for core researchers. And Dave talks about bracketing out the patient experience from core research for a while at least. And with that, we talk about the prominence of phenomenological qualitative research and how the possible rise of this particular methodology has been influenced by the deeper understanding of pain from a scientific perspective. And finally, we discuss the incredible potential of qualitative research to give people other ways to see, to be, and to experience the world. So while this episode is badged as an AUA, it doesn't meet this particular category or follow this particular style. This was part deliberate and part accidental, as rather than responding to your questions directly, we use them to create topics and themes of conversation, which we hoped that by moving through them, we could address some of the excellent questions that you sent in. That was the deliberate part. The accidental part was that in all honesty we got carried away and lost in conversation. We ran out of time, which is easy to do when talking with Dave, given the breadth, depth, passion and pointedness of his views. So if you're expecting a back and forth Q&A, this isn't it. But we cover some extremely interesting and important topics related to qual research, healthcare practice and education. And Dave has promised to come back for a proper AUA another time. And we're planning a full-blown critical series with him and his colleagues appearing on the podcast to really explore their critical reflections and challenges to healthcare practice and research. So stay tuned. So I bring you Professor Dave Nichols. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ollie. Thank you for having me back. So this is, we planned this for ages, this mm. kind of, not Q&A, AMA, AMU, AUM, <laughs> AUA. <laughs> this Ask Us Anything episode, which is off the, the tail end of the qualitative research series. And we invited some questions on social media about the series. And the last episode with Jenny is just about to go out probably in a week's time. So we're recording this with you having listened to the majority of the, the episodes. Yeah. Before we get into the questions and some questions that we've had for each other, perhaps just reintroduce yourself and what you're currently doing and your the, the sorts of things which are keeping you awake during the day or during the night. Sorts of things keeping me awake at night. Um. Yeah, well, thanks, Ollie. My name's Dave Nichols. I'm a professor of critical physiotherapy at AUT University. I'm the founder and chair of the Critical Physio Network and was involved in setting up the International Physio History Association and with Philip Marich helped set up the Environmental Physio Association. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called The End of Physiotherapy. And just two weeks ago, finished the first version of the new book, which follows on from the end of physiotherapy called Physiotherapy Otherwise. 
So that's me. That's been keeping you awake, I'm guessing. That's what's been keeping <laughs> me awake at night, yeah. Um, first thing that I thought we could do, before we actually get into any kind of question and answers, is I just wanted to acknowledge the work that you've done on this podcast series, but also the Cause Health series that went before, Ollie. I know how much work goes into producing these, organising them, and all of the post-production work. And I, I, I really hope that people appreciate all that work because it's a phenomenal effort. And I'm particularly grateful for you tackling this thorny question of qualitative research. So, so thank you for that. Um, we did have a series of questions that we posed to each other. And in just talking before the podcast, we thought that maybe one of the first things to do would be to think about some general reflections on the qualitative series as a whole. Now, having um, developed this idea of having a qualitative podcast series and then putting it all together and then hearing the conversations with people, I just wanted to ask you what you your thoughts were. Where did it come from? Why did you do it? Had it met your expectations? Um, has it exceeded some things? Um, what were your general thoughts about the, the series as a whole? So I think firstly, thanks for the unexpected praise. That was completely unexpected. So thanks. So in terms of where it came from, it came, so it came off the back of the Core Health series and where, where the series got, you know, tried to kind of hit bedrock in terms of causation and evidence and the nature of practice and complexity, all these theoretically rich and philosophically diverse topics. And I, that kind of just, rocketed me into exploring things beyond kind of back pain or pain beliefs or language which is still really interesting but it just seemed like a natural so I, I, my background as a researcher was in qualitative or is in qualitative research and I remember when I was learning about the methodologies and the philosophy and going through my own kind of paradigm shift it was confusing for me I'm aware of the kind of broad range of positions that can be held and the different methodologies and methods and just knew that there wasn't much out there in the podcast sphere around some of this stuff so just thought for my own I suppose selfish benefit would to try and understand a bit a bit better and to become more familiar with the, the different uh, approaches that are out there and then just thought well if I'm going to find them useful I'm pretty sure other people will find them useful too students clinicians and I suppose I wanted to share, you know, share my own, or rather force a paradigm shift on other people <laughs> and kind of put them through what I went through. <laughs> and and also recognising that some of the misconceptions around qual, that it's un, you know, it's not real research, dare I say it's unscientific, if, if you're aspire, if you, if that's a good thing to be scientific, but certainly it's not, it doesn't generate valuable knowledge, can't really use it. I wanted to dismiss some of those those misconceptions and and show that it is a a entirely useful and important way to generate new knowledge about the world particularly around the clinical world and the patients and people that we care about so that's where it came I was kind of going down these rabbit holes with course health and thought and then between that there were some really lovely episodes with Philip and Karimi and mm. I think probably just those two and Peter Stilwell. And that just, again, just was kind of shepherding me into this more 
philosophical theoretical work and so the quality research was the next kind of target if you like on the next topic to hit it seemed to me that you were trying to target two sort of audiences and as you said in the introduction i've listened to most of the interviews you kindly shared the unedited version so i could hear some of them most of them in advance but the one or two that i haven't heard but it seemed to me that you were targeting two sort of audiences the people who were coming to qualitative research with some skepticism or some uncertainty feeling like feeling that it offered something but didn't really know much about it and then also those people who might have some experience of it maybe qualitative researchers in their own right who were looking to hear some what seemed to me to be some quite high level conversations about theory and philosophy and methodology and method was was that where you wanted to pitch the series yeah it was it was the impossible task that which i mm. which i kind of described i think in the uh, that like that there's an ama i did myself kind of just forwarding the the series that that would be the ideal that it both introdu introduces or or whets the appetite of people that really didn't know much at all about it but thought god it is actually quite good or it's quite useful i want to learn a bit more but at the same time for example the grounded theory episode it, i wanted it to offer people that were familiar with some of the methodologies something too oh, i hadn't heard you know I'm, i haven't heard explained like that before that's a, a an interesting insight or particularly mm -hmm. coming from the the guests that were on that really had something to say about the methodologies which they talked about so yeah you're quite right it was both it was both to introduce and to to kind of dig a bit deeper into some of the the methodologies which tend to reside in books Mm, articles mm. and and more so youtube videos but there certainly wasn't you couldn't do the vacuuming whilst learning about grounded theory or mm. thematic analysis you would have to sit down and, and read this stuff so it just seemed like a or you have these conversations as part of a postgraduate yeah, qualification quite. where you can sit shoulder to shoulder yeah. with somebody but that's become increasingly difficult and um, costly mm. for a lot of people um and not that common in health curricula particularly in our disciplines physiotherapy and osteopathy it's not that common for people to have extensive training in qual research it's often an add-on because it's assumed that quant is the predominant way people come to think yeah so it is quite difficult isn't it to access that material it, it is and i think it's such a shame because it's a shame for a, a ton of reasons but certainly on the clinical side that the exposure that student clinicians get to research is typically quantitative research and so it begins mm. to shape their view not just of the research world but of their clinical world they see things in, in a certain way and they begin to value a certain type of knowledge which is generally statistical quantitative measurable kind of tangible information which they can apply with quantitative research that's almost devoid of any theoretical discussion unless you kind of go to philosophy of probability i suppose which you could do but that's not often taught is it it's it's, it's methods and skills around analysis and collection of numerical data so it's such a shame that that the research training that is delivered at undergraduate level has implications for both the sorts of evidence and research that these future practitioners will, will utilise, but also it shapes their clinical view and how they view themselves in relation to patients and knowledge and the, you know, their professional identity, all that kind of stuff. 
I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because I don't know how you learned about qualitative research, but one of the things that's fascinated me for a long time and was what was partly the inspiration behind the first book, The End of Physiotherapy, was the sense that even by the end of the first year or the, certainly into the second year, the students that I was seeing in, in my work as an academic, as a lecturer, they hadn't been taught anything really about quantitative research and yet they thought entirely about physiotherapy with a quantitative logic. So there's something about the way that they were trained um, and I think that point about training is really important here. But something about the way that they were trained funneled people into automatically thinking in a quantitative way. Now, I don't. I mean, how did you come to qualitative research, considering that both you and I had, real, had classical yeah. health trainings? So my, I kind of stumbled into it. So I originally, my original ideas for kind of my doctorate was was about manual therapy, and I was just obsessed with doses of how if you wobble a certain part of the body a certain amount of time what is the outcome like if you wobble it for five minutes in a certain direction versus mm. two minutes in a different direction what are the kind of outcomes in terms of pain perception or pain pressure threshold those kind of things so i was really interested in that and then i went to my supervisor who wasn't this is professor ann moore who's since retired but was at brighton university was a physiotherapist mm. was both quantitative and qualitative but said, well, how do osteopaths determine their dosage? And even the idea of dosage is a bit weird, isn't it, in regards to touching someone, but that was the term she used. How do they know how much they're going to wobble someone or you know, poke them or prod them and in what yeah. way? And there really wasn't any literature about how osteopaths make those decisions. And then she was like, well, you can't really explore how much you're going to wobble and poke someone unless you know really what the kind of motivation behind wobbling and poking people in the first place is. How are Ross thinking about wobbling and poking? Obviously, I'm mm. simplifying manual therapy. Well, maybe not. <laughs> and so then it said, well, that's really, I don't really know. Like, There's lots of historical texts and textbooks about skills which have been just passed down from clinicians over the years and sit on shelves in libraries about how to do manual therapy. But they were really just based on individuals' experiences of doing a thing and then they wrote a book about how it was for them to do the thing based on some anatomy and and that's how it works so so then she said well you've got to go find this stuff out and then i went down the route of observing clinicians videoing them interviewing them to really try and understand and actually end up not being at all about wobbling and poking but more about how they conceptualize the mm. body themselves knowledge decision making all those sorts of things so it was a massive shift for me but thankfully I didn't go down the wobbling and poking, measuring, you know, with some EMG machine and, and took me into much more theoretical, philosophical uh, research. Mm. I think it's really interesting then and how you arrive at that point anyway, where you need to start asking some different questions when prompted about the nature mm. of what osteopathic knowledge is. And that that isn't part of your training automatically. It isn't already mm. there. And I think about, physiotherapy training and um how how the curriculum is is just imposed on students you have a linear most often a linear course that begins at point a and finishes at point z and you graduate and there's no variation there's no moving everything has to follow a path it, the 
the perspective is never changed because of the people in the room. I don't know about you, but certainly when I was training, nobody ever changed what was taught in that morning session or what that, what that lecture was done on the basis of what my values or beliefs were in the audience as one of the students. It didn't matter what, what I brought. It seemed the implication was that the students are literally um, a blank slate onto which we um, write, or as uh, Paolo Freire says, you know, we bank, we, we fill students up with this new knowledge mm. um, that the students then are expected to take into practice. Um, there's little, there never seemed to be, for me, much humility taught in the knowledge that the students were trained into. And that word training has always struck me as interesting, the fact that we train our students rather than expose them to education which has an implication of much more plurality. Um, there was never anything contested in the physio curriculum, and, and to, to a large extent it still isn't. Facts like the anatomy and physiology of the body, pathology, biomechanics, kinesiology, they are just given. There's little debate about them. Um, and so, But, but the, the, this has a massive effect on the students because it gives them this sense of confidence that this is in some ways special sort of hidden knowledge, that they are now the expert they're the ones who hold this knowledge and that gives them kudos and a sense of confidence. And I've got colleagues who um, work with students from many other disciplines and they say you can spot a physiotherapy student by just how confident mm. they are in the stuff that mm -hmm. they strut around the campus. But I think this affects the student's ability down the road to co-construct thinking with other people, other colleagues, with their clients, with family. Um, and so their, their knowledge only it becomes uncontestable. It's pure knowledge. And we even talk about the pure knowledge coming first. And it's only applied and becomes variable and open to discussion when it's applied to cases. And even then, the teacher's job is to guide the students to the correct way of thinking. There's, there's very little space for ambiguity and uncertainty. And, and partly, I think, from a from a historical point of view, from a professional culture point of view, that's been important because... You can't betray ambiguity and uncertainty in your professional knowledge because that leaves open the door to people who might creep in and encroach on your work. So you need to be assertive. You need to show that you command this knowledge in order to retain professional power and prestige. And then added to that, there's, there's so little space in the curriculum. We did a, this was a few years ago now, but we, we totted up the number of exams our students had over the course of their four-year undergraduate degree. And they had one exam every 12 student days over the course of the four years. So there's no room to pause or to question. The curriculum is jam-packed with stuff, to em again, to emphasize the importance of getting your head down and packing the material in. So it doesn't leave any space for doubt or questioning. Um, and, it, and it definitely promotes, certainly the, the material that's taught, even in the very first weeks of a physio training, promotes the idea of a kind of the, the classic Western biomedical idea that all knowledge is ahistorical and asocial. You can carry it to any corner of the world, deliver the same material on the anatomy, the origins and insertions of gracilis, and it will apply anywhere. It's just a fact. And so it, it, but it, but it belies the fact that that way of thinking has been a massive source of soft colonial power. And I'm speaking in the context of living in a country which is a you know, a, a country in which Europeans colonized an indigenous population. It's a massive issue here about the way that that kind of knowledge is, has stamped out other ways of thinking.
Um, and so it's not, it isn't, it's not surprising in some respects that when students get to the end of, even the end of the first year, they're all, they don't even need to learn about p-values and Pearson product moment mm -hmm. correlation calculations. They already, they're already thinking in a way mm -hmm. that speaks to a kind of quantitative approach. Complete. And I think, you know, educators of healthcare students or physios or osteos who say, well, yes, but there's a lot of creativity and knowledge at the clinical stage when they go out in hospital wards doing their rotations or in my case, kind of clinics tied to institutions and they can get creative with kind of knowledge and, and, you know, kind of using a range of different knowledge sources to make decisions with patients. However, my experience is that even those situations are pressurized and fraught with assessments and competencies and skill-based assessments and that you can take reflex as well and take blood pressure and do your cranial nerve test and relay the cranial nerve assessment to the cranial nerve anatomy. So it just carries over. So the same sorts of assumptions which are based in the anatomy classroom just carry over into, into demonstrating the anatomy or the knowledge of the anatomy through skills. So the so that there isn't a chance to to get creative. Yeah, and of course, if you're saying to people that this is core knowledge, this is the basis of your professional discipline, and then you go on to clinical and you're expected to think otherwise, you're expected to think now creatively and innovatively or think about people's lived experience, whereas nobody's ever really exposed you to that before, or the social context of health and illness, but nobody's talked to you about it before, it either feels like you're betraying your profession to do so, your professional culture, and why would we be asked to be doing that now if we weren't, if it wasn't developed earlier on, or you feel what you feel terribly exposed because well, where do you go? And this is what we've been saying about the qualitative research series. Um, where do you go to find this stuff? Because it just feels quite alien to a lot of people, I think. And I think. You know, so the idea that the research education which sits within healthcare professional education, training, for want of a better word, courses, is there purely to just develop skills in research. That's a very naive, narrow view that actually when teaching about research, it's really about teaching, uh, it should be about teaching knowledge and our assumptions around knowledge and that these assumptions are kind of bled into all all the knowledge that they'll encounter throughout their professional lives and so you can you can imagine creating a a research let's call it research methods module but even that doesn't do it justice but a module which yes might equip the student with a range of skills in different research methodologies but really opens their eyes to the range of different knowledge sources, the epistemologies, which which will be apparent in the different positions that they may take or can take or others take, rather than just think, right, we've got to get them to be able to use SPSS or you know know how to how to kind of sample or to you know do these tests. These are just again, these are pretty narrow. Mm. I think though that the research methods training that students get is really an add-on because they are getting exposed to particular philosophical and theoretical positions from the very first moment they come into their training. But they're often not. You, the, the theoretical positions which underpin a p-value aren't often communicated or taught. It's just, this is a p-value, 
and this is this is it, you know, how often is philosophy of science taught with confidence intervals? I mean, it's almost never. It's just not. Well, certainly not with me. It's these are the techniques that get you the answer. There's very little uncertainty there or or grayness. It's just this yeah. is the truth. But the principles behind things like um, positive positivist ways of thinking um, about empiricism about looking to find evidence of what you know to be true um, about things like reliability and validity. Are you, are you asking the right question here? Um, about the sensitivity of the measures you're doing. A student who picks up a goniometer for the first time and it learns how to use a goniometer. It's partly about the sensitivity and reliability of testing. Now, they don't know that, and it's often not taught in that class. What's taught is here to, here's how to use a goniometer. But subtly in the background... What's happening is you're enculturating students, you're socialising them into certain ways of thinking. And if anything, what um, quant and qual training does, or the, however those modules are taught does, is it systematises that process. It pulls those processes out and says, you've got two classes here. One teaches you how to use a goniometer, but in this class we're going to teach you about sensitivity and we're going to look back on how you use it in say, using a goniometer. But this is about sensitivity or reliability or it's about generalizability or it's about induction. Or But all of those things are going on in week one of the year one of the course. It's just, it's the hidden curriculum. And my point is that what our training often doesn't acknowledge is the way that we subtly, subversively, guide the students to think in very quantitative ways about their practice. They come to think that their practice is underpinned by quant. I I encounter this with our second year students and they get one week of qualitative learning at the end of a 12-week semester and 11 weeks are all about the principles of quant research. Now, they get one week at the end. It's the week before the exam. So at that point, they're, they're hardly paying any attention. But that doesn't matter really, the fact that it comes at the end and it feels like tokenism. The point is that for the previous two years, they've been enculturated into quant so that they, when I start to talk to them about, say, the reasons why in qual studies, um, human qual studies, interview-based studies, it's okay to maybe have six to eight participants. And already at the end of year two, they're questioning, well, how can that be? As if they already know that large sample sizes are the only truth you can possibly have. Mm, you've got to convince them. <laughs> so that process, you know, it's not just about the qual teaching itself. It's about the way that the the culture, the socialization of our practitioners into those kinds of ways of thinking makes it makes it difficult for them to think about qual because it feels either counterintuitive or alien or foreign or confusing. For my own experience, I'm really lucky the institution I work with that we don't really have that much and there would have been at some time but i think when i came i'm fortunate i worked within a team where pretty much everyone is uh, kind of able to to handle or teach or engage with both all the methodologies and so there is a, a real emphasis we've been we've been very conscious to balance the the research education curriculum so they're exposed to qual quant of course one's got to come first and like they, <laughs> you, you can't teach them simultaneously really but certainly I, i'm really proud to say that the students do come out with as far as i can tell a pretty rounded view they're not 
kind of walking positivists with lab coats and test tubes there they and many choose to do qualitative studies albeit it's theoretically vacuous <laughs> and superficial but certainly the intent is there to 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 look beyond you know mere statistics or p values or you know those sorts of things which i think stands them in good stead so I think with that, you know, to do just what I say to them, they, if they do a qual study with 10 interviews and they're spending, let's say, 10 hours really talking to participants about whatever topic they're interested in, in terms of skills which then transfer to clinical practice, I mean, that's a really important set of skills or experiences that they've engaged with, asking questions, really being interested in the other and the, the perspective of the participant. I, for me, that just carries over beautifully to, to real world practice well i i can't speak to the experience of everybody you know around the world or what what academics and educators are finding elsewhere but i've had a couple of conversations just in the last two weeks with people that have just left me bemused really about this one of them is a colleague in the states who's doing a dpt who about a year ago contacted me to say um, he was looking for some help. He wanted to do something that was about clinical decision-making as his thesis, but didn't really know how to progress it. And he wanted to do something that was more philosophically informed. And his faculty have told him that if he could, if he has to do something qualitative, it has to be one of four methods <laughs> and that they won't accept. He's put his whole research proposal together, which is really interesting and philosophically grounded and theoretically robust He's very interested in Foucauldian discourse analysis and understands it and has been able to articulate it to them. But they said, no, you can't do that. You have to do interviews. If you're going to do qualitative, you have to do interviews. This is a doctoral student who's being told what methods and methodology to use to do his study. Um, I've got another colleague I was talking to a couple of days ago who's um, doing a really quite sophisticated piece of research and he talks to his colleagues in other other universities um, and tries to canvas opinions on their thoughts and some of them are really quite high-ranking researchers in departments and universities and he'll tell him the the idea that they have and they say oh that's fantastic what you need to do is do it this way hmm. and you need to come and join me and do it this method and and you know I'll and and they they're very keen not only to say that's a fantastic piece of work but to say and you really should do it this way because that's their way that's their kind of um hobby horse if you like or their skill area and i think that's it's really interesting how there's so little space for the kinds of ambiguity and uncertainty in um in 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 qualitative research or even the ways people are thinking about mm. clinical practice and thinking about the ways that their professional disciplines might be developing or ideas within their professions might be developing so it's interesting you know coming from a quant perspective to a qual approach it was to me initially chaotic you know qual was like this is just madness like small sample sizes being able to ask people different questions in 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 different interviews or doing observation or you know, all the you know, the inherent subjectivity which is seen as a attribute of qual that was really disorientating for me so for me it was the, the kind of the lack of creativity that you're seeing in in qual i perceived it in qual compared to quant so this is just super creative but having spoken to, to Jenny and obviously you and reading about post-qual, that's another level of 
another le- level of, I don't want to say chaos, but even more ambiguity or uncertainty because, you know, and we've spoken about this, about the, the, the focus of methods that qualitative researchers place or some qualitative researchers place on. I, I never really thought about how focused I was on methods as a qual researcher. And, um, you know, we had some thoughts about why are qual researchers so focused on methods? Why is it the entry point for coming to, to kind of non-positivist research? And I suppose the reason why, so I suppose methods are the thing that you can hang your hat on in a sea of uncertainty, a bit like clinical practice. So, you know, you know whether it's relating to a patient, communicating that intuitive kind of sense, that's all pretty dark and mysterious. And it's quite, it's easier just to engage with reflexes or myotomal strength or, you know, this, this is certainty within a sea of real, un, with, in a sea of uncertainty. So I suppose it's quite, it's yeah. a nat, you know, humans want that certainty and something we can really kind of get hold of. Methods are things that can be communicated easily. This is how you code. This is how you do a interview. This is how you, you know, create or emerge a category. These are the techniques of comparison. They're easy to talk about, aren't they? Like we can have a conversation about coding and grounded theory all night long, where if we said, actually just, you know, I don't know, just ha- if you're going to go into a field with, with, and I don't know, I'm, I'm got, <laughs> I've got a good example of, of not using methods. Do you know what I mean? That's why it's so difficult. Yeah. And I mean, I joked with you before that um, I was, I was telling a friend of mine that I was having this conversation with you and we we're going to be talking about qualitative research and she laughed and she said, why is he talking to you? You don't like qualitative research. <laughs> and she was absolutely right, actually. And, and I think one of the, one of my biggest concerns about our exposure to qualitative research, particularly as clinicians, is it comes in through methods. And I think that's partly because of our training. Our training is so methods heavy. We come to know our practices as clinicians through methods. We assume that you learn the methods and techniques first, and then you understand the principles after. Um, unfortunately, in our areas, the principles often don't follow that much because by that point, you're so socialized to thinking in these particular ways that the only principles that you can really engage with comfortably are those that support the ideas that put you there in the first place. So mm. it's actually taken a long time for me to shed that idea. Um, but I mean, would it would it help if I sketched out the reasons why I don't like qualitative methods? Yeah. Qualitative methods or qualitative research? Qualitative methods, and I can explain why that's linked to qualitative research, but it, yeah, I'll try. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, the question I asked Jenny was what form of qualitative research and what, is it all methods? Is yeah. it my qualitative research, you know, like my work? Yeah. Or, you know, is it, is it, is it just every, anything that uses a declarable method which is going to be used by others yeah well okay so first of all i would put myself very much in the post qual camp and if you're listening to this after you've listened to jenny and anna's interview you'll have had a sense of what that feels like but so i should say this isn't necessarily just my position there is a growing consensus within the qualitative health research community that we are moving to a post-qual world. And I'll, I'll try and explain what I mean by that. We need a bit of a bit of background, though. I mean, uh, background to explain 
how this comes about. If we take research in general, we know that forms of research have been done for hundreds of years, both qualitative, quantitative, positivistic, experimental, um, anthropological, um, epidemiological, lots of medical experiments have been done for hundreds of years, social surveys and population censuses, those kind of sociological things have been done for hundreds of years. But those things really were, were not systematized. And it's only since probably the early 1900s when people discovered the placebo effect that we've really had a modern medical quantitative research basis to the work we've done. Now, of course, medicine got started early and was doing high levels of medical experimentation into the early part of the 20th century. But for us in the professions allied to medicine, we didn't really start doing a lot of that work until the 1950s. And if you look back at some of the early journals of the 1950s and 60s, some of the early research reporting would be by today's standards, very rudimentary. But in the field of medical research generally, by the 1970s, there'd been a, a growing sense, both within health professionals, particularly professions like midwifery and nursing and psychology to some extent, that medicine was overreaching. It had become overly reductive. Um, and the, the radical activism of the 1960s, the feminist movement, uh, the women's right to abortions and safe medical practices, disability activism, a lot of the kind of colonialism and civil rights movements, Marxism and some of the work on poverty, and, a, and this kind of general rejection of the idea of reason and logic was something that sounds a bit odd, but really followed the end of the Second World War when a generation of people, in particularly in the 1950s and 60s, saw that we'd brought ourselves to the brink of mass destruction with nuclear weaponry and started asking questions about really the dividend of um, modern life and what all, what other ways of thinking might there be other than this scientific rationalism which seemed to be driving us towards uh, a very bleak future. So a lot, there were a lot of calls, particularly in healthcare, for more humane approaches to knowledge and a rejection of these kind of reductive scientific approaches. So you've got here the, the kind of coming together of a range of different perspectives. You've got this critical voice of power in society and those who have and those who have not, and a desire to give voice to people. And in healthcare, you've got very dominant medical profession telling patients what to do. So you have the birth of this sort of lay professional culture. You've got the emergence of a, of a neoliberal culture where uh, there's a lot more expectation of consumer choice and a growing concern with cost and efficiency of and risk and accountability um, for health professional practice. And you've also got what's, what was termed this relational turn, where knowledge ceases to be something that's just held in the hands of a few experts, but could value the experiences of people in their own health and illness, for instance. Um, and so researchers, health researchers in the 1960s and 70s started drawing on a really wide range of social fields like sociology, cultural studies, history, philosophy, anthropology, linguistics, education, the humanities, the arts, and started bringing some of those influences into thinking about health knowledge. And it created this enormous diversity of ideas strongly focused on philosophy and social justice and questions about the nature of reality and ideas of subjectivity and what the lived experience of health might look like. Um, a lot of stuff about ethics 
and what it meant um, to know things and also trying to communicate with hard to reach populations, people who'd previously been very poorly served by um, positivistic medicine. But then somewhere around the 1980s, these sort of burgeoning qualitative research field, although it wasn't really called that until the late 80s, early 90s, started to get, gain the attention of, of the medical community who started and quantitative researchers who started to ask why it was that these new researchers could get away with doing methods and approaches that seemingly didn't make any sense, um, small sample sizes, um, interestingly alternative approaches to data presentation, narratives and poems and stories and all kinds of strange things. And so there was a big push from the quantitative research community to kind of pin down qualitative research. And Elizabeth St. Pierre Adams talks a lot about this, about then this turn that took place in the 1990s in qualitative research to conform to some of the principles and standards of quant research. So things like the language of reliability and validity started coming in, reporting standards, um, standardized sampling strategies, questions of things like rigor and trustworthiness, researcher reflexivity, negative case analysis, expert panel reviews. I mean, the list goes on and on of the, of the kind of ways in which qual research was sort of captured. And that's the point at which qual research turned really strongly to methods um, in an attempt to some extent to legitimize it as a form of knowledge suitable for medical practice, fitting in with a medical positivistic tradition. Um, but of course, in doing so, it becomes something different to what it originally was attempting to do. Um, and I loved what, what Jenny said um, about having to make these methods concrete because of the necessities of funding and legitimacy. Qualitative researchers today really have to fit in with some of those power structures that are in place in, in, in healthcare. So the biggest issue for the, for the post-qual people is that essentially qualitative research has lost its way. In fact, qualitative research has come to be a phrase that is associated with a methods-driven, standardized, um, simplified, stripped-back approach to research techniques of data gathering and simplified analysis. And what it's lost is its sort of critical vitality that drove it in the first place. So the post-qual movement is not about replacing phenomenology with a new method called post-qual. Post-qual isn't a method. Post-qual is, is this philosophy that says, if you go down the route of doing presenting a research study, which has no seeming theoretical or philosophical basis, you get six to eight people in an interview, you do a thematic analysis and end up with three themes that basically tell people what they already knew, that is um, qualitative research as it is today, but that is not the good stuff. That's not where the really good stuff resides. And what what we're seeing now is that is a sort of schism in in that field. You have qualitative research, which is the vast majority of the stuff that's being published and being supported by journals, which is very kind of analytically thin and doesn't often tell you much that you don't really know. And I would even go as far as to say that if I was a quant researcher, I would reject that stuff. 
um, I, I reviewed an article last year from three researchers who'd spent three years doing a study on chronic pain. And they'd interviewed six people and they'd done their thematic analysis. And their three themes at the end were, I think, one was pain was aversive. Secondly, it disrupted people's lives. And thirdly, people didn't like it. Now, you've spent three years to come up with that kind of conclusion. And I'm seeing this all the time. I review for a lot of journals qualitative pieces. And they're so analytically thin. They're so weak. They, I'm not surprised that a lot of people look at them and think, you know, we should reject them. The post-qualitative movement is the idea that methods are the very least interesting and the, the very last thing you need to think about with a qualitative study. And that there's a whole bunch of other much more important factors that need to come into place first. And so it doesn't say that methods aren't important. It just says make sure that the methods that you use are consistent with the philosophical grounding, the theoretical grounding of your study, but make the philosophical and theoretical grounding the key because that's what elevates your analysis. That's what takes your analysis from the mundane and the obvious into something that really knocks your socks off. That was a phrase that you used in our first chat mm. about, quote, there's, there's a kind of paucity of core research which knocks your socks off. Yeah. So what do you say to the seemingly the contradiction between so there's so core research is replete with methods but yet it's analytically thin many of the methods that that post qual are kind of railing against are analytical methods these are ways to conceptualize data to code data to compare data to construct categories to move between codes and categories but yet it's not yielding analytically rich findings so that's interesting right if you would expect uh, so I, I think what i'm getting at is that it's the lack of theory perhaps i'm thinking about thinking with theory and that you can have all the methods in the world but if these are somewhat kind of vacuous just techniques about how to arrange data or how to how to kind of orientate yourself around organizing data it, it leads to analytical or, or kind of a superficial analysis whereas it's the theory and the philosophy which enriches and brings those methods alive to make them purposeful and and analytically rich. Because do you see the the oddness there that there's lots of methods which are probably there to help with analysis? These are analytical tools, but yet it's analytically thin. Yeah, but I think the the plurality of methods that we've got to some extent is there because we've got an absence of really good uh, use of really good theory. There mm. is so much amazingly good theory out there so many great ideas that were there isn't a person on the planet i'm sure who couldn't find a really interesting coherent robust theory that could inform their analysis but what they have instead is a plurality of methods and so you see these the playing cards basically shuffled around the table the 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 proof of the pudding to me is very simple if i'm looking at a qualitative research report an article in a journal the first thing I ask myself is, does it tell me something I don't already know? Now, the best qualitative research of any sort is this thing about knocking your socks off. I was, I've, I love Barb Gibson's. Um, she has a, an argument. The first question she asks is, does this research tell a compelling case, make a compelling case? She's not worried to, uh, beyond just, you know, reason. 
about the methods that the person's used and how many people they've interviewed and whether they've um, done their member checking properly, if they've done it at all. Or She wants to see a compelling case. Have you brought together enough material to support this argument? And I think that's a lovely way to phrase it. If you can draw on some of these amazingly profound thinkers and their ideas, it can elevate your data to such an extent that it takes you into zones that you could never imagined you were thinking about. Now, if I've got a PhD student working with me and assuming that their study is going to take them, let's say, three years full time, I would spend the first year just getting them reading and thinking and questioning. I don't want them in their first year to even contemplate and narrowing down to a method or a hypothesis or a question. I'm assuming that they've got some kind of prompt that brings them into their study that is going to be novel and interesting. But I don't believe usually that that's what the thesis is actually about. I think the thesis is hiding somewhere back in the distance. So the point about that first year is to go off and read this, have a read of that, see if you can find something in there, have a read of this person, look at what they've written here. And slowly what you see then is this unpacking and and more often than not, I'm trying to get their ideas to be as broadened, to blow off the doors of their kind of conventions. Because if they're health professionals, they've been socialized so much to think in quite narrow ways that my first job is to kind of break some of that. Then once they've really got a very broad canvas to, to work with, to then slowly start creeping in. And more often than not, the student won't know what the thesis is actually about until about six months out from actually handing it in because it's an iterative process, it's a developmental process. And the question of, well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to measure that? How are you going to capture the data? Comes way down the line. And usually by the time you get to that point, it's absolutely obvious what Mm -hmm. you need to do. Hence why I would say that the methods are the easiest thing in qualitative research. They're the least contentious. There's nothing particularly difficult about them. That's not where the juice of qualitative research lies, though. But that's what's become very much front and centre in health research. And I think that's partly about that socialisation. Yeah, I mean, and they're not not especially different either from each other. So coding in one methodology or, you know, some construction of categories or memoing, they all kind of look the same. It's a bit like getting different healthcare professionals to to take reflexes. It's the same sort of thing, whether it's done in an osteo clinic or physio or chiropractic, it's the same, it's the same thing, isn't it? So is it the case that the post-call will say, well, the, there are methods, whether we like it or not, there are ways of a- analyzing data. Like there's a way of getting a transcript or whatever the data might be. It might be field notes or observational data or textual data. You've got to do something with it, that you've got to manipulate it, for want of a better word. I guess there's an infinite ways of doing it, but you might come up with a really good way. This is what I said to Jenny in the study that I think you guys submitted. I think you were part of the group. That might that you so that's a really good way that you kind of fiddle around with that data. There's some really interesting methods. I think I'd like to know how you did that. And I might even try it out in my own study. And you can see how these things begin to ossify and just kind of hand it down. And then you've got a whole you could you begin to codify the method which, which which was serendipitous and novel at the time, but just becomes an, another set of methods. So how do you stop stop that? Like it's methods, methods are things that people do with data. Well, I think 
if you if you, if we were to just really strip things back to to fundamental basics if and we can use something even as simple as the, like the biopsychosocial model to do this and and when Bob and I wrote the paper about body and physio we took a, a version of that um, an embodiment version and talked about healthcare practices that are focused on the biological the the real live the real body that that where illness and disease resides that can be uncovered with quantitative techniques of assessment and diagnosis and treatment now it's entirely possible for you to be a osteopath or a physio and to work entirely in a biomedical domain biological domain in which um, you see health and illness as residing within the body and your job is to essentially locate where that disease or impairment is and to fix it so it if you're one of those people then your practice is going to be very much orientated towards fixing curing kind of problems you're probably not going to want to build spend a lot of time in your treatments building relationships with people because it's not about the person's lived experience it's about the biological body it's very body as machine kind of approach short-term treatments um and usually you are the expert and the patient comes to you now that's one way to think about your practice but if you took, say, what in the BPS is called the psychological one, I don't like that term because it's so much been colonized by psychology and that's very close to biomedicine in a lot of ways. But if you took, say, the lived experience or the experiential domain of health and illness, then if you could situate your practice entirely there in the person's lived experience. And so the things that matter then are what, that, what sense that person makes of their illness. There's no biological basis that really matters. What matters is what the person experiences and their in intentionality, their, what their consciousness is drawn towards. And that's the focus of the practice. You might put a lot of emphasis on their subjective experience, and so treatment sessions will be longer. You'll often have co-constructed ideas of what health and illness means. You're not, you won't be necessarily the expert here. The patient, the client, is the one holding all of the knowledge because it's their subjective experience. And you might invest a lot of time in, in relationships, in relationship building. Now, just the third example, which is hardly done at all in our disciplines, if you could be a professional who works entirely in a sociological domain. And here, for instance, you're arguing that health is not something that's biologically uh, resides within the body, nor does it reside within the person's individual lived experience, but it's socially constructed. And so in that sense, your focus must, might be on more sociological concerns, like your role could be as an advocate for a community to build resilience within the community. You might be dealing with issues of um, the social determinants of health, like poverty and advocating for better housing and looking for better education resources or pollution issues or stigma and, and discrimination. Mm. You might be dealing with the community very much. You go to them, you are in service of the community, you adapt your practice accordingly. Now, the point about these three different domains is that they're mutually exclusive. You can't believe on the one hand that health resides within the biological body and then on the other hand say, no, it doesn't, it lives within the person's lived experience. No, it doesn't, it resides within the social world. And yet we all know as experienced clinicians that we engage with these three domains all the time. So if you took the biological body and you thought about just a longus, then 
that's quite clearly conceptually different to a lived experiential domain, like something like hope, which is it in turn quite different to a sociological concern for things like poverty. So how do you, what do you do when you've got a student in year one and you're trying to get them to think in a pluralistic way about the realities of healthcare? Do you teach them just the biological facts and stick with that? Or do you then switch in the, do that in the morning and then in the afternoon switch to a lived experiential world and deal with the hope and the faith and the uh, joy and the desire and all of those kind of existential experiential questions? And then on another day, maybe in the evenings, concentrate on the sociological concerns. You would have a very, very confused student. It would take 17 years to do your undergraduate degree. And you wouldn't know where to conceptually begin. And so what has happened in most of our health trainings is we've said those other dimensions of health, like the, the experiential and the sociological dimensions of health, they might exist out there. It's just they're too complex. They're too difficult to do. Or the students will just pick it up through experience. What we'll concentrate on is the idea of the body as machine, the biological body as the centre of training. And then these other things can be sort of super added. Well, it doesn't help. I mean, if, you've, if you want to change the way that the students approach people and you want them to be much more relational or patient-centred, you can't do that by adding the experiential on top of the biological because all you're saying is that the biological is really mattered and this this really matters and this stuff is just nice to have on top mm. so the but then we couldn't we can't conceive of a physiotherapy training for instance which begins on the basis of an experiential relational connection with a client now i've worked for a long time with um, people teaching psychotherapy curricula and their psychotherapy curricula is entirely based in a relational context and they bring in the kind of biological stuff and to a greater extent the sociological stuff in much more intimate in, in in much more additional ways and you've got other people like social workers who engage very much in a sociological space and bringing those other domains in everybody has to choose but the world that we're entering into now is becoming complex because it's asking us to be both expert in the biological attentive to the lived experience and the relational context of practice, but also advocates for a sociological, the sociological questions about social determinants of health, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, advocacy, um, the issues of poverty, climate change, the sociological questions. And really, a lot of our educators don't know which way to turn. They don't know where to go. And so my the one of the biggest points I've made in a lot of the writing that I've done is that just focusing on the evidence base for the biological dimension of practice won't answer the bigger questions now facing our professions because they reside within a sociological primarily, a social space. I mean, physiotherapy is a social construct. And so to understand it, mm. we need to engage with sociological theory, which is what this new book, Physiotherapy Otherwise, does, tries to do so we have a we have a real problem which is why we are entering in what a lot of people talk of as a post world a post human post humanist world a post professional world a post qualitative world the post refers to the period after the confidence of the kind of western biological led project of the professions is coming to an end 
And that's not because the health professions haven't done great things. It's just that the world is just demanding so much more. And we haven't really got the answers to how to implement them so much more because we're so locked into the biological is dominant. So, so what qualitative research does could be, and how that's how we engage with that could be really important in shaping how our professionals think about their practice in the future. And so a default back to method and just this is how you crunch a set of interview data about a person's lived experience of Parkinson's disease and comes out with three themes that say Parkinson's disease is horrible or something equivalent is not going to go anywhere near enough to understanding the broader questions affecting health in the health in societies inequalities professional development human experience all of those really rich and complex things that reside outside of method so but so theoretically informed methods is kind of it's kind of how i thought qualitative research should be practiced so methods would would kind of flow from or the the theory would offer a lens by which to to kind of engage with these methods so that i suppose that's what i don't see as as being new in the sense that that was just to me good qual research that's really that's a good way of doing this particular thing but i i totally get that a, a large part or a lot of qual doesn't take that view that it is methods first and methods centered and and researchers don't engage in the theory probably based because of time and funding and all, all those sorts of reasons and so what's the i guess what's the is emphasizing the the role of theory and i know post qual has a whole range of different kind of arguments within it but one of them is is the the role of methods so but placing theory first or theory middle whatever it is that seems like that's just good qual research that's not post qual that's not abandoning qual that's just advocating for good qual research or theory rich qual research yeah, I think that's what I was saying earlier on, that that originally was what qual research, qualitative health research was meant to be. Yeah. And it got corrupted. I think is that's Elizabeth St. Pierre's argument. It got corrupted along the way by people who wanted to see their research more amenable to biomedicine, to the medical publications. Um, we had a question from somebody that said, what do you do when a journal only lets you publish an article with 4,000 words? Yeah. In? Um, but let me put this back to you. When during your training as a as an osteopath, were you ever introduced to ideas, say, about Marxist ideas of alienation or Max Weber's ideas about social closure or um, symbolic interactionism and the idea of lay professional relationships or critical theory and gen and gendered theory or post-colonial theory in osteopathy? Were you ever no. given any? See, I teach a postgrad course called Health Professional Practice, which has got many different health professions in it, and they get some exposure to this. These are f basic, fundamental, not difficult ideas about why we experience health the way we do. And to a person, they will say that nobody has ever, ever talked to them about these kind of ideas. They, they know nothing about Judith Butler or Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida or people like that. Nothing. No exposure whatsoever. And we know, we know that that's the case. So on the one hand, I take what you're saying about it's just good qualitative research. But on the other hand, I would say then if that were the case, we'd see it in the literature, we'd see it in the publications. 
but it's really only a handful of people in health research and certainly very, very few in um, physiotherapy and osteopathy that are um, engaging with this kind of thinking. Most of it, the vast mm -hmm. majority is very process methods led, what I call quant light rather than qualitative research. It's I joked beforehand about saying that quantitative research in physiotherapy has become incredibly sophisticated in the last 20 years, um, really, really advanced and can hold its, you know, can hold a candle up to pretty much any sphere of quant research in the world in any domain. It's very, very sophisticated. We're not seeing that level of sophistication yet in qualitative research where you're getting the equivalent in a lot of qualitative research of the quant equivalent of a pie chart. You know, the stuff we saw in the 1960s and 70s where people could still publish their results in pie charts. You're getting that in a lot of qual. Now, I think that's changing. And I think the post-qual movement, which is pushing for a lot more theoretically led thinking, um, is really changing that. And as you've got a, a generation of people like Anna and Philip Marich and uh, Jenny Setchell um, uh, leading the way on some of this stuff, they are going to be pushing their students and their colleagues to just lift their game. And they're not going to accept the equivalent of the pie chart in their qual research. And I think things will change accordingly. I think they're going to really drive a different attitude. There's a maturation process going on. And I think post-qual is about saying, okay, we've had a period of 20 odd, 30 years, maybe where we've been publishing, doing some very quite average qualitative stuff that really hasn't transformed anything really that much in the health sector. Um, much of the, much of the advance in the health sector, that's transformation in the health sector has come from outside from the humanities, from sociology, from anthropology, criminology, from philosophy. It's come from fields outside. Qualitative health research um, hasn't really done much to shift the, the barometer away from thinking by purely only biomedically about health and illness. The change that's happened has come from outside. So not surprisingly, the people who are doing the really interesting stuff in the qual research space are those people who are drawing on philosophy from outside sociology mm. history anthropology and cultural studies and other areas and you had a question for you had a question for me or maybe for both of us about the patient experience and how so much qual you know, that's really the the focus of qual research particularly in healthcare right i mean obviously in healthcare yeah. but particularly yeah. in physiotherapy osteopathy it's about the patient's experience and you, you got a question about what would happen if we bracketed out that patient experience altogether from research. Yeah. So I suppose I'm interested to know what, if you have an issue with patient experience or there's too much of it or it's getting in the way or, or, or what your thoughts are around that. Well, I think patient um, research into patient experience is a, is a safe place to go. If you're wanting to start exploring the richness and depth of other ways of thinking that, that are, are embraced in qual research it's a it's a very nice area to go in to be able to say the to talk about the richness of the patient's experience feels intuitively right i mean don't we all say that all of our patients are unique um we all know that all of our patients are unique but of course that doesn't get very well represented in in the biomedical sciences because essentially one hamstring muscle is the same as every other one that's what you're taught. You look at the pictures in Grey's Anatomy, and that's 
that's an erector spiny and that doesn't matter whether you're young or old or rich or poor it's just an erector spiny so if we want to talk about being more humanistic in our practice and being embracing a broader view it seems like a safe place to go to to hear the voice of patients and to hear that get that experience but if you look at qualitative research it is so dominated by that kind of perspective as if the only place you can go if you're not thinking about the body as machine is to the lived experience of the patient and do a few interviews and just basically thematically analyze that and present a few themes then it's it's become a lazy kind of shorthand for what is an Im enormously rich field now my particular bias and my training and background is in sociology um so the social dimensions of health are things that really interest me the whole questions of power the whole questions of um the whether there are structures guiding our practice discourses that exist that precede us and define who we are as people never mind practitioners about questions of gender and class and race about social determinants of health and the things that people are born into and have to live with that a lot of research says is far more important than the behavioral changes that an individual might make those are the things that to me are really interesting and i see so little of that in the the way that in, in certainly in physiotherapy you see a lot more of it in practices like nursing and occupational therapy but in nursing and occupational therapy they already they set out from the from the basis that they have a what you might call a holistic view of health they don't accept just a biological framing of the nature of illness and disease and so to become a nurse or an ot you have to accept that you're going to have to understand multiple dimensions of what it means to be a human being not just the lived experience and then just finally i'm also as a foucauldian scholar i'm very drawn to the work of michel foucault and foucault is really concerned about what he said it was putting too much weight by the voice of the author putting too much authenticity on the voice of the author in other words you go from saying that reality of health and illness lies within the body within the muscles or the bones or the diseases within the body to a position where you say no the reality of illness lies within whatever the person says it is and so we can only get to the reality of their um uh, illness by talking to them and what foucault is very interested in is not what people say they do but what people actually do so much more engaging in the the world the sociological world um in a rawer state rather than mediating it through what a person says so for many reasons i think it would be nice if we could just bracket out all of the patient experience for a while and then say to people okay so what what are the questions might you ask about health i mean from a grounded theory perspective is everything is everything done through interviews i know that the early glazer and strauss stuff was a lot of observational work was a lot of kind of yeah yeah and hospices and yeah and it didn't take the person's phenomenological experiential no. view as being you know the truth yeah i i think you know with the, the focus on patient experience the 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 methodologies which come with that ipa essentially and methodologies which focus on on that first person lived experience that's a safe place for 
the pain scientists and the brain scientists to go mm. because the rise of pain science and the 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 kind of reconceptualization of pain from purely just a nociceptive thing to a, this emergent complex experience is kind of a safe place for them to go and to to get their hands dirty with some qualitative work because it maps to their to their to their own interests around you know, pain as an experience and so why not begin to research this thing with with patients but here you've got a fantastic i think philosophical theoretical question that i it would be really lovely if we could have with some of these new brain behavior or neuroscience based um pain specialists because it seems to me that a lot of the pain science has still a very strong grounded in say neuroscience so brain and behavior so that even though it's reaching out a little bit into person into into a person's subjective experience it's still fundamentally grounding the nature of illness within the brain within the body um finding a neurological basis for thoughts and cognitions and behaviors and personalities that's a very different thing to starting out from the premise that there is no biological basis to speak of to illness but that all experience is essentially phenomenological mm. is intentional is directed towards something and the only thing you can say a person is conscious of is what their immediate thoughts are drawn towards and so if you i don't see much of that and so a lot of the a lot of the things we're seeing i think with psychologically informed physiotherapy they look like they're reaching they span the kind of biopsycho dimension and they sit somewhere within that space i don't think they do i think they're they take an aspect of psychology which is closest to the biomedical that's the behavioral and the cognitive psychology stuff there are vast areas of psychology that that don't resonate with those kind of ideas at all but they take the bits that are closest to the biological and so that you can keep intact this idea that there's a biological basis to pain underlying everything even though you might overlay the subjective experience from a from a methodological point of view that would if you took that view your your approach to that research would look very different than if you took the view that actually pain is entirely an individual construct a human subjective mm. construct it would look vastly differently and so it would be fantastic to have a conversation you you just have to look i think at the way that the research is conducted to see what the underlying premise is behind what the person thinks pain is and it's still very much located within the biological goodness me look at the time what are you doing the rest of the day yeah <laughs> um i've got a question for you yeah what do you think Let me just pause for a second while I think how to frame this question. Okay. Now you can decide whether you want to answer this or not. So my question is when you started thinking about the whole post-qual stuff, the Elizabeth St. Pierre, Maggie McClure stuff, and we're reading about post-qual, I know that you felt like abandoning this whole podcast series and <laughs> uh, you joked as much yeah why was that so i mean, i was never really going to abandon it but certainly it made me wonder what wonder what am i doing and like is this the right 
side of the argument. I like to try and be on the, the, the right, if there is a right side, but you know, the most, the front end of where knowledge is and to hopefully have, you know, to be in the, in the right, in the right space during these conversations. So when I heard the criticisms there, I was like, I, I really wasn't aware of them. I was like, goodness, I thought, you know, I, I really, uh, I guess it struck a personal kind of note because I'd struggled through this transition from going from quant to qual, like most people do, and had to re-conceptualize everything I knew about everything. And then watching the videos and reading some of the papers from uh, St. Pierre Adams, it was kind of like, well, I guess I got a bit firstly annoyed. I said, what do you want me to do? Like I've just, I've bought into all this stuff. You know, I've really invested time and energy and, um, kind of effort to to not just internalize this stuff myself but but to kind of teach it and espouse it and you know to try and convince others that this was the right way to go so there's an initial kind of a, well this is just you know i you, you asked me to change into one paradigm to switch into one paradigm now you're saying it's the wrong paradigm and i should go to a different one or, or take a different approach so it's that initial kind of annoyance like well you're never bloody happy are you there's always some paradigm shift i've got to make or i've been doing the so there was that um and I thought there were some really compelling arguments about uh, that she was making against, I suppose maybe I, I knew that the, the arguments she was making against some of the arguments about qual and the, the blandness and the, the, the kind of theoretically vacuous work. I it probably struck a chord with either some of my own work or work that I thought I quite liked. Um, so I thought she had a point. So I got a bit despairing. Um, so, so that's that was really why I was just a bit annoyed and frustrated that maybe I'd mm. that all this the, the changes not I had made but the way that the road that path I'd been I'd gone down well actually that was the wrong path you should be going down this path so they have to then you know jump into another paradigm or kind of completely reevaluate sure. ideas and beliefs that I, I had reevaluated you know a decade before and it's a tension and a frustration I think is experienced by pretty much anyone who has a classical western biomedical training in in medicine in all the adult health professions but i was i'm interested in the fact that you said you know you'd first made this transition from quant to qual well in fact you'd first made a transition from being a normal person <laughs> into quant yeah and I, I'm struck by how you your frustration was with Elizabeth St. Pierre Adams and her argument that you now need to move on again, and not with the people who said, let's take you from being a normal person who lives in a holistic sense in the world and think like a quantitative scientist. Yeah. Because the, if anything, and betrayal's a strong word here, but for convenience, the betrayal was in narrowing down your thinking in the first place subsequently now you have to put so much work into breaking now i'm a postmodernist in the way that i i try to think and to me it's not a frustration with the fact that i've got to think about things in all these different ways it's it's kind of a radical opening to possibility of thought that to me is the most interesting thing about the whole panoply of qualitative research so much of our practice and our positivist tradition of learning is about closing down ambiguity is about resolving uncertainty into certainty about finitude and answers and proof and i'm not suggesting 
that's not important. But it, there's a quote that I was I mean, if I, um, I was looking for it the other day. It's from uh, the American writer Rebecca Solnit. And I won't get this right, but I love this quote. And she was talking about museums and the way that museums work with artists. And it's, it's a bit abstract, but you'll get my point. And she says something like, museums love artists the way that taxidermists love deer. And she, she was basically saying that their desire is to kind of take something that is rich and wide and diverse and very much about the way we all live in the world and secure it and pin it down and stabilize mm. it and capture it. And it feels like in healthcare, we just want to hunt ideas down and kind of kill them or mm. capture them and put them in a cage or stuff them and mount them on the mantelpiece. It's, and it's a very bleak idea about the way we live in the world. And one of my favorite writers is a woman called Avital Ronell, who's a American uh, writer. And she's very, very rich philosopher, lots of amazing ideas. But she talks about the reason we do this is because we have what she calls the gash of non-meaning. And what she's saying is we're all living in a world today, and I think we experience this with our children and our grandchildren and younger generations, where they're faced with so many existential challenges, COVID, climate change, um, terrorism, just so many things that are pressing down on them, all enhanced by social media. And we would so much love the world to be just contained a little bit, to be constrained. We'd love it if healthcare could just be an A plus A, A plus B <laughs> equals C equation. And yet, of course, the reality is that we know it's not. And so Ronald talks about how we, we reach for emergency supplies of meaning. So we like smash the glass just to grab <laughs> the emergency supply of meaning that will just do to anchor us because of this gash of non-meaning. So I don't doubt that for a lot of people, positivism, quant research, the biomedical body as machine provides some reassurance. But I also know that very, very many clinicians, once they've graduated and they've secured, they've got their armor on, which has come from all this kind of knowledge of anatomy and physiology, and they march out into practice. From the first day they start encountering people in the real world, they start to question whether there's a bigger world out there. And to me, the you were abandoned by educators and professionals who from the day you walked into the university said, forget who you are, forget your culture, forget your identity, forget your unique perspective, forget your social context. We're going to train you to think like a biomedical scientist. And since that day, you've been trying to shed it. Now, I think that qual research has this enormous potential to give people ways, other ways to see and to be in the world and to experience the world. I, I hope that it's not going to be captured by dry, arid, bureaucratic, administrative methods. I still think there are a lot of people out there who are doing some incredible work and um, they're, they're a real inspiration um, for ways of thinking in the future. Um, yeah, and I, I just just want to comment again on this series that you've you've done because what it's done is it's given people a taste not only of different approaches but also the passion that people have got for them and it doesn't matter where they come from what they're trying to do is engage authentically with those ideas and think through health in different ways and i think the series has been phenomenal from that point of view
Dave, thanks so much. Thanks, Ollie. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.